is bigger and faster, always better than smaller and slower. There's no doubt that our commission to take the good news of Jesus Christ around the world has been made more challenging by those who in the name of making it bigger and faster have actually substituted a watered down product for the real one who have grown something quickly, but we're not entirely sure what they've grown. How often have Christian churches and Christian missions been in reality lost people telling lost people how to have religion rather than forgiven born again people telling lost people how God can save them through Jesus Christ. I think many of us have a tendency to want to say that our church's missions work is exciting and important. But what's really exciting and important is our God and what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. That's what's exciting and important, like the brother right here. Brian? Yeah, just was saying right a minute ago. I love the way Mike Horton puts it. Everybody wants to change the world, but nobody wants to do the dishes. We like the stuff that's headline grabbing, that's exciting, you know. But a real biblical understanding of missions is amazing. It practice, its practice translates into the schedule of a new place, the ordinariness of language learning and risking rejection and sharing the gospel and learning a bus schedule in a new city. I'm convinced that one of the marks of a healthy church is a biblical understanding and practice of missions. So those are, that's what I want us to consider, the understanding and the practice. So after lunch, hard to pay attention, made it easy, two points. Practice, I mean, the understanding and practice of missions. Understanding and practice. And I pray that as we hear this, that God will help us to understand what he intends in his churches, and we will be helped to be that in each congregation represented here. So first, biblical understanding of missions in the life of the local church. What does a church believe? Missions is not a word we find in the Bible. It's not, it's not a Bible word, but it is a biblical idea. Missions is taking the gospel across boundaries, especially the boundary of language. So if evangelism is telling the gospel, sometimes to people who don't know it, missions is evangelism telling the gospel in a place and among a people where it is largely unknown. And according to the Bible, this mission is to transform the nature of humanity and nothing less. We're involved in something absolutely amazing to transform, in what way? Oh, friends, to bring a us into a reconciled relationship with God, our good creator and judge. This is the basic storyline of the whole Bible. From the first chapter of the Bible where God creates the world that he calls good, to the fall in Genesis 3 and God's promise of redemption there, the scope of the Bible is cosmic. It is worldwide. And then the story seems to restart with a very small scale where God calls one man to himself from modern day Iraq, Abram. In Genesis 12, God tells him that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. So the trajectory is set for the Old Testament. God would bless Israel, those people descended from Abram, as a precursor and as a means 
to bless the whole world. God's role in the world is shown in his decisive defeat of the mighty Egyptian empire as he frees his people from slavery. And yet, as the Lord said through the prophet Isaiah to his special servant in Isaiah 49, verse 6, Isaiah 49, verse 6, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And as we observed this morning, what is the end of the earth when you're standing in Jerusalem? It is North Carolina. You know, we are evidence that God is actually doing this. So this servant that the Lord speaks to in Isaiah, this servant comes and is crucified and rises again. And the son of God teaches his disciples all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus was saying, as much as it takes, as long as it takes, I'm with you. That's what he's saying in the Great Commission there. And he has been. We see the disciples scattering in the book of Acts and the gospel going throughout the Mediterranean world and beyond, fulfilling this very command Jesus gave at the end of Matthew's gospel. And we see its final fulfillment in the book of Revelation, which is, fulfill, which is filled with scenes like the one described in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So friends, the basic story of the Bible was never merely ethnic or local or national and parochial. It was always as wide as the creation. That's always been God's intention. Always been as comprehensive as the creator's claims themselves. Now, if we understand this to be what the Bible teaches that it's about, the exoneration of God from the slander of angelic beings, then we must be especially clear about the gospel, the good news that is at the very heart of it all. We can tell how important this good news about Jesus Christ is. By the way, Paul calls for the damnation of any who would change this basic message of the gospel. We see that in Galatians chapter 1, verse 8. This message is the means by which God will reconcile the world to himself and so bring redemption to all who will trust in Christ. So what is the message that's at the very core of each and every church represented here in this room today? Well, it's the one we heard so clearly from John just before lunch, that God is holy and that he has made us in his image. We've been made to be holy like him. And yet all of us in Adam and ourselves ratifying that in our own lives have sinned. We've rebelled against this God. We have committed spiritual suicide. And God has in his amazing love not judged us as he would be just to do, but God has sent his only son to live a life of perfect love and trust in his heavenly father and then to give his life because he didn't owe it. There was no sacrifice needed for a perfect life of trust sinlessness, goodness. He laid his life down. No man took it from him. He laid his life down 
on the cross as a sacrifice in the place of everyone who would ever turn from their sins and trust in him. And God raised him from the dead, showing that he accepted this sacrifice and he ascended to heaven and presented it to his heavenly father. He calls on us all now to repent of our sins and to trust in him. Friend, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I'm not sure why you're at a missions conference, but you're very welcome here. And I would encourage you to turn from your sins and trust in God. Trust in Christ. Trust in what he's done. If you want to know more more about what that means in your own life, talk to one of the people sitting around you. You've got to be in the best room you could be in Raleigh right now. You know, it's a missions conference. We would love to tell you more about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Well, this good news of Jesus Christ is the only means of our being converted from spiritual death to spiritual life, from being, moving from being condemned to being saved. This is how the Apostle Paul understood his whole ministry. Paul recounted the risen Christ's words to him at his conversion on the road to Damascus. I'm quoting from Acts chapter 26 when he recounts it. Acts 26, beginning verse 16. I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you, this is the risen Christ speaking to Paul, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Well, friends, this is the great good news. It's led to our own conversions. Uh, Most all of us sitting here claim to be converted. This is how we've become Christians. And it is what we share with others in our evangelism. This is the news that we share. The nature of truly believing includes repenting of our sins. So there is in true Christianity a quality of self-denial which naturally leads us to grow in taking up our cross as we pursue holiness and as we love God and others. That's why Mez can have this whole thing called war. Why did life just get harder? Very much like 1 Peter. And it's in this combination of self-sacrifice and love of God that we find the seed of missions in our church. This is not unrelated to what this conference is about. You could say that missions begins at home with a concern for the conversion of your family. So teach, befriend, evangelize, disciple your children. Brothers and sisters, have a concern for your friends. Friends share the gospel with friends. Call yourself a friend to somebody and you never share the gospel with them? You got a pretty thin idea of friendship. What does it mean for you to be prepared to share the gospel with someone at work this week? Maybe getting some copies of Greg Gilbert's excellent little book, Who is Jesus? You realize that establishing an evangelistic Bible study at work, wherever you are, in the Carolinas, in Virginia, is much like what it would be to do that in Singapore, or if you move to Moscow. There's going to be a lot of similarities. Evangelism is like the basic movement in working out in the gym. You learn proper form to do a particular exercise. Evangelism is the proper form you need to learn if you're going to be involved in missions. This is the same thing you'll be doing, only in different contexts. So don't wait to start evangelizing after an international flight. Start now. Why not find a Muslim friend in your neighborhood? Offer to read through the Quran with him. If he'll read through the Bible with you. So friends, in evangelizing here, you not only share the good news with real people, but you prepare yourself to do that anywhere God may call you to go. 
as we grow in understanding the Bible's big picture, I think that discipling younger Christians naturally becomes more important to us. So in our church back in D.C., we work for a culture of evangelism and discipling in the church. And what I want to see in that is the very foundation of a culture of missions. So friends, don't underestimate how you handicap missions in your church by making evangelism seem like it's an optional part of the Christian life. You make evangelism seem like it's optional, and you can kiss your missions program goodbye as anything other than a hypocritical assuaging of your own guilt by giving some money. Baked into our basic discipling of each other in Scripture and holiness should be a concern for evangelism and missions. How do we as individuals spend our money as part of our church's missions program? Uh, How are we spending our time? Friends, if you model that well, then you're, you're helping other people to see how to do it. Who are you meeting up with? Are you spending any time being obedient in sharing the gospel? Are you modeling praying and giving specially for the gospel going out to the nations? Brothers and sisters, this is how we participate in this big story of the Bible. So in coming to Christ, God moves us from being self-focused to being God-focused. This causes us to notice others as spiritual beings made in his image that he cares about. And so we begin to care about them too in our evangelism. And ultimately that care ripples on out to the whole world, which must include those who have never heard. So missions isn't something occasional and optional. It's an essential extension of what God has always been about in this world to bring glory to himself through us. All right, I only have two points. That's my first point. Now on to my second point. A biblical practice of missions in the life of the local church. What does a church do? Let me encourage seven sequential steps of leading our churches in world missions. Seven sequential steps. Number one, we learn about God's word and God's world. We learn. So we begin with the word and learning from the word, the big picture we've just been considering. So we pastors need to be deliberate in teaching this, don't we? We've got to keep showing the people the big picture. You just think about this past Sunday morning. What did you do in your sermon? Did you teach your members to get better at sharing the gospel? Did you help them to see what was going on in this passage that you were preaching on that had to do with the gospel? Did you teach anything specifically on missions? Andy Johnson, who's going to be speaking later in the conference, has a regular missions reading group where he meets with any members who want to to read through things on missions. It meets on a Sunday afternoon. It's a way of just beginning to help people think more carefully about this. Brother Preacher, in every sermon we preach, we want our members to learn what God would teach us in his word, right? So the main way a church becomes a missionary-sending church is by the preaching of God's word. Let me say that again, because if you don't know that, that is the most important thing you'll hear at this conference. The main way a church becomes a missionary-sending church is by the preaching of God's word. Our expositions should show scripture clearly pointing to the cross of Christ as the center of human history and should encompass the whole world as the aim of Christ's work. So each Sunday we should pray and labor to show the gospel as the glorious offer that it is and summons to non-Christians and in its life-encompassing scope and extent to Christians, we should revel in the gospel. 
Brothers and sisters, pray for your pastors. If you're not here as a pastor, pray that your pastors would apply the word well. The Presbyterian church that I attended in college over in Durham had regular bulletin inserts which informed us about the church around the world so that we could pray better. So encourage your church members to get resources like Operation World, where you can read about a different country every day and pray through them. We've got a long break coming up after the panel after this talk. And during that time, go to the bookstore uh, and look at what conference resources are there to help you do this. Have you thought about how you could use social media for prayer? For example, follow some Twitter sources online, like friends who work with college students in some ministry, or fellow pastors elsewhere, or news sources. Everything from the British Guardian world to National Review Online, from CBS to PBS NewsHour. Follow many of them, and when you pray for the day, make your Twitter feed for a few minutes your prayer list. Pray about these matters. Learn to pray about everything from unemployment to terrorism, from the president to the latest Nine Marks conference in Spanish. You can't pray for someplace, let alone develop a heart for it, if you don't even know about it. I thank God for our church's outward focus. And I pray that as we continue to study God's word and grow spiritually, that that outward focus will only increase. The way it increases is by us learning. Friends, number one, we learn. Number two, we pray. We pray about the spread of the gospel in other places. We want the gospel to be central, not just in our sermons that we preach, but in our prayers. We want to think more about this in our conference here next year. The conference next year is on prayer as a mark of a healthy church. So mark your calendars for that. But there's no way we can consider what it means for our churches to be mission-sending churches without thinking specifically about prayer. So just as a little preview of what we may be talking about next year, I want to rehearse three specific ways that I can quickly share with you that I try to work in our own church for our prayer life to be intertwined with our missions work. So in our individual praying, in our Sunday morning pastoral prayer, and in our Sunday evening prayer meeting. Just three examples of how I do it, and we do it at our church. You can find ways that you might do something similar with your own life, your own church. First, our members praying regularly through our membership directory is a basic way we love each other beyond attending regularly and giving regularly. And it's basic to the work of missions. As we pray through the mission, the, the membership directory and for each other, that we would have wisdom to know how God would use each one of us to have a part in that assembling of the international chorus that I read about from Revelation chapter 7. You know, God's assembling that chorus even now. Well, what part is he calling us to play in that? We pray especially for our elders that we would see how to encourage our church to be more faithful to the Great Commission. In our own church's membership directory in the back, we have a special section to encourage prayer for pastors who've gone out from here, from our church, missionaries that we support financially, uh, those that we've served uh, with or who served us on staff or have been interns at our church. We try to keep in mind what they're doing and pray for them. So Caleb Matthews, who's uh, passed around the microphone just a few minutes ago, is now the pastor of Murphy Bible Church here in Murphy, North Carolina. So that's in the back of our directory. So we pray for Caleb. We pray for Murphy Bible Church. Also in our morning service, our pastoral prayer is very important, our prayer of intercession. In it, we try to model how to think about this world and what's happening in it from a gospel-centered perspective. And I think this actually helps conversations about those kind of topics become more naturally evangelistic. 
because you hear how the pastor prays, how he approaches certain things. So we pray for other churches by name. We pray for God's work in pastors that have been sent out from our church. We pray for persecuted Christians around the world. We pray for the spread of the gospel through gospel preaching churches being established around the world. We pray especially for the spread of the gospel in unreached areas. That's in the pastoral prayer in the morning service. And then the third main category of missions prayer in our life together is in our Sunday evening time, which is our prayer meeting. Our our congregation tries to assemble again to end each Lord's Day together in order to hear updates and to pray. Now, our prayer meeting on Sunday night would naturally become more inwardly focused, except for the fact that I push hard to make it otherwise. I have the difficult conversations. So if you want to have a prayer request, you've got to ask me first, because I'm the pastor. I'm the one who leads the thing. So you've got to come tell me, hey, I just got engaged. Can we pray about that? No, we don't have time tonight. We can do it next week. Okay. Um, hey, uh, my, my, uh, my, my, my uh, uncle is in the hospital. Can we pray about that? No. But I'll pray about that right now, and you can pray about it in your small group, and you can let people know by email. So I have very difficult conversations to protect that time for a time when we're praying mainly about gospel ministry that's focused out. Part of that is due to the size of our church. If I'm in a church with 50 people, I probably have time to pray about a much wider variety of things. But when I'm in a church where I'm going to have 500 people there at the prayer meeting, uh, I've got to keep the things focused on what we as a whole church family are united about in a special and unique way. And so that's this outward-focused gospel ministry. We want to pray for things people who've gone out, we've sent out for the sake of the name. Maybe some of them are visiting us again. So we'll pray for each other in our evangelistic endeavors. Uh, We pray for our mission trips. Um, I I love the way we get to begin each week by ending the Lord's Day bathed in prayer and for the spread of the gospel. So I'm always inviting members of the church to let me know about recent evangelistic opportunities. I have a hard time getting them to tell me. I know they're out there because they'll mention them in passing It's like by accident. And then as soon as I get one, I pounce on it. And I say, hey, will you share this on Sunday night? Charles, why don't you stand up right now? I see you smiling. So Charles Kim, turn around. So Charles, just a couple months ago, took an opportunity at work. He let me know to share the gospel. He said it in an internet company. And uh, he he got a sort of conference room to share the gospel with his fellow employees, his colleagues. I thought that was a great thing. So I said, Charles, would you share that on a Sunday night with the members? Because I love it when it's not a staff member, it's members of the church doing evangelism. Naturally, with the people they know, the jobs they have, because I'm hoping when Charles shares that, not only is he encouraged, and then do we pray that some of those men and women will be converted, but then hopefully we're provoked out of inspiration or guilt, I'll take either one, to try to ourselves become more faithful in the situations that he's put us in. So that if Charles is going to do that, if Charles can do that, well, then maybe we can do that, you know, where we are. Some churches just ask if there are any evangelism stories spontaneously to share. I just love the assumption in a church like that that evangelism is always happening. We want to see the gospel being shared. So all of the praying we do on Sunday night about upcoming evangelistic opportunities are in part meant to encourage our members in the form of exactly what they need to do if they move to London or if they move to Dubai or if they move to Lucknow, India or Marrakesh or to Singapore to spread the gospel. And many members of our church are from other countries or have family contacts there and a lot of knowledge they could share with us. So Merib has shared with us about Ethiopia and Rob Satram talks to us about the Sudan. Or Hanya could tell us about China. I mean, we've got a lot of, by God's grace, a lot of opportunities to hear firsthand knowledge about other places. So 
We learn, number one, we pray also. That's number two. Number three, we plan. We learn, we pray. Number three, we plan. We plan to make our church increasingly useful to the spread of the gospel. We want to care for other churches. And a biblical understanding of the church as an assembly is so helpful to this. So you're at a Nine Marks conference. So learn this basic Bible fact. A church is an assembly. So if you disagree with that, I do think you're disagreeing with the Bible. The church is an assembly. It's more than an assembly, but it's not less than an assembly. When you mistake having one church for meaning, well, we have one preacher, we share in a bunch of different assemblies, I think you unwittingly inject a self-focused competitiveness into your relationship with other churches. Because if you can have an infinite number of people in your church, why should there be any other churches at all? It could be there before you even do that. And some churches that are meeting in multiple places or times work against this, but I can just tell you from personal experience that gathering all together as we have done for 140 years on one corner in D.C. is not only biblically faithful to what it means to be a church to regularly assemble together, but it is also a powerful encouragement to have an outward focus as a church. So if some churches get full, so let's say this is the building we're meeting in, we're not far from full, let's say we fill up just a little bit more and then we're, we're basically full, what do they do? Well, some churches start another service. Or they'll start a meeting, you know, in another building five miles away. But for our congregation, uh, committed in a very old-fashioned way to not doing that, unless we want to build a bigger building, uh, we either build a bigger building or, or we do nothing. Well, we pretty much don't have any choice but to try to help other churches in our area and to work to see new ones get started. So we try to help other churches by supplying preaching, by encouraging fellowship between pastors. We have tried to work in a concentrated way to see some local congregations that were down to 10 or 15 people be revitalized. And by God's grace, we've seen some wonderful examples of this. So this is relevant to us as we consider missions because this kind of working with other churches teaches us to look at Christianity in the whole local area, not just our church. So we're interested not just in Capitol Hill Baptist Church, but Christianity in the Washington, D.C. area. So we're, we're used to looking at that. We don't have to go to the mission board to learn how to do that. that. They might be helpful to us, but that should be a basic skill any pastor has because any pastor should be concerned about his whole community and his whole area for the gospel. And that's the same skill we need as we work to see the gospel spread to the nations. Now, I'm very thankful that the Lord has called our congregation to be in D.C. It's where he's called us to be. It's a great place to reach the nations from. He's brought scores in them to us. Our, our members work with them and live with them and eat with folks from all over the world. So in my sermons, I'll try to challenge them with questions like, what are you doing to reach them? Would any of them appreciate you inviting them to come to church with you? Come to your home for dinner afterwards. Have you gotten involved helping the work on the college campuses? College students, do you realize the unique international friendships you're being offered during your student days? Brothers and sisters, consider teaching English as a second language or sharing the gospel with those you come to know. Or join in with our international students ministry and work to share the gospel with those who are here from overseas. Make some friends. Take them out to lunch after the service. Talk with them about it. What international communities could we be doing a better job trying to get to know and love? Turkish? Afghan? Chinese? Well, brothers, 
preachers, you know the opportunities that your congregation has. Speak to them about them directly. Also, in our congregation, some of our members are from overseas, like I say. So some of them will be wonderful missionaries. So encourage your members to look around where you live and see if there are international communities that they could engage with the gospel. How can our churches help our members reach gospelless places near us? Could your members volunteer at a pregnancy center? Is there gospel work to be done in the jails? Is that something you should perhaps be helping with? That will only help to prepare you to move to reach gospel needy places far away. Are there refugees in your area that you could be working with and helping other Christians to connect with as well? What a marvelous opportunity God gives us. Do you know how many times God uses physical displacement to bring people to the gospel? Part of the way that we plan to make our church useful in missions may surprise you. It's by what we don't do. I want to be really clear about this. We deliberately have very few programs at our church. I have more than once been asked by people literally, where are all your programs? We don't require our members attending a bunch of things other than we want their whole Sunday, you know, because we want them to have time during the week to serve others, to build relationships with non-Christians, to help out in their community. That's how they prepare for other usefulness later. Fewer programs in a church may allow time for more real ministry to occur. Just consider that. Fewer programs may allow time for more real ministry to occur. Brother pastors, we want our churches to be useful like Paul assumed the church at Rome would be. Over in Romans 15, verse 24, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. I love the way that Paul could just write to this local church at Rome, a church he'd never been to. And just because it was a Christian church, he knew it was going to be receptive to missions activity. This kind of usefulness in missions is what we pastors pray for and plan for. That's what we're doing, spending this time at this conference today. Uh, we, as a church, want to do this. So, we learn, uh, we pray, uh, we plan. Number four, we pay. We pay to support those who go out for the sake of the name, who can't or shouldn't support themselves. Uh, you know what I'm getting at when I say that. Uh, open, your, open your Bibles to 3 John. Look over at 3 John. So go to Revelation and then go back. Two books. Literally two pages. Look at verse 5. Third John, verse 5. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Friends, that's pretty straightforward. This is our duty and our honor. <clears throat> this is why our giving and our church budget are so important. 
So the elders in our church have an informal agreement that we want about 15% of our church's budget, our total budget, to be given to international missions. That's just, it's not a law in our constitution, but that's what we try to do. It's kind of like individuals, you know, many of us decide that we want to give the first portion of our money, the first 10%, anything we get goes to the church without question. It's like we give the first part of our week, that first one-seventh of the week, that first day, boom, goes right to the Lord, uh, to his work, to the church. So we mean as a church to give the first 15% of our giving to gospel work where it's especially needed overseas. Your church's budget should be able to be well used as a prayer guide. You see where you're putting your effort as a congregation. You remember to pray for those things. So our church especially gives to the Southern Baptist Convention International Missions Board, but we also give to support other workers like a family in East Asia, a number of others I could mention. Our members pray for them, and we, we pay for them. Brother pastors, teacher congregation, always to try to pray for what we pay for. Always try to pray for what we pay for. Let's never send money without prayers. Other money our church gives ends up helping our world mission causes. Our support for nine marks helps to train pastors and send materials around the world. Even some of our church's staff salaries are really used to help other churches as we use our time to do that. We want to give with discernment, with generosity, and with joy. Discernment, generosity, joy. Let me look at those quickly, each for a minute. Obviously, we want to give with discernment. We can't give money to everybody that asks us for money. Who will we support to take the gospel overseas? Well, you need some criteria to think it through. Are they going to take the gospel to the unreached peoples, largely to be found in the 1040 window? If you don't know what the 1040 window is, that's a good question to figure out at the next break. Is the particular work that they want to do Is it work that's going to result in people hearing the gospel and churches being planted? Will they do the work well? Do we know them well? What's their connection with our church? If they are hoping to be missionaries and are with us now, are they active in the church? So we want to use the money that we're given with discernment. We also want to give with generosity. Uh, for people to prepare well, to go, to stay, to minister there, to transition. Brother Pastor, perhaps your congregation has treated you generously. That's how you want to make sure your congregation treats your missionaries. That's what we're going to do with our workers. Did you ever notice Titus chapter 3, verse 13? Turn, turn back a few pages. Titus chapter 3, verse 13. Paul exhorts Titus to make sure the two Christian workers sent out from there, Titus chapter 3, verse 13, lack nothing. The last two words of verse 13, lack nothing. I'm fine with tent making when it's needed and when it's adopted as a missionary strategy like Paul did in Corinth. He made tents, paid for his own living because there were false teachers who generated their income by their teaching, and he didn't want to confuse Christianity with one of those paid-for messages. But I'm concerned that Scripture's basic teaching on our paying pastors well not be lost, because Christianity has gone forward for 2,000 years by Christians reading their Bibles and paying to fully support those given to the churches who are particularly good at teaching the Bible to them. 
paying pastors more poorly than you are able to is ungenerous, it is unbiblical, and it is short-sighted for your church's work and for your own soul's sake. The 1689 Baptist Confession says in chapter 26, the work of pastors being constantly to attend with the service of Christ and his churches and the ministry of the word and prayer with watching for their souls as they that must give an account to him, it is incumbent on the churches to whom they minister not only to give them all due respect, but also to communicate to them of all their good things according to their ability. That's Galatians 6, 6 they're thinking about. So as they may have a comfortable supply without being themselves entangled in secular affairs and may also be capable of exercising hospitality toward others. And this is required by the law of nature and by the express order of our Lord Jesus, who hath ordained that they that preach the gospel should live of the gospel. And they're thinking about 1 Corinthians 9 there. Friends, God has been so kind to us. We want to be open-handed with what he's entrusted to us. So at our church, for instance, we focus our support on a few workers and we support them heavily. If we become just one of 100 churches that are supporting a family, you know, giving them $500 a year, like 99 other churches, we don't really take ownership of their work and we leave them effectively unaccountable. We may be able to have one more nation's flag added to our general assembly of missions activity around the world and so feel we're better fulfilling the Great Commission, but in fact, I think we're hurting things. Brothers and sisters, God seems to present us with money for the opportunities he gives us. And frankly, most of us have so many more opportunities than we can adequately fund. So we pray for more funds, but we want to give generously and support well. And one final note on our giving, we want to give with joy. What a privilege it is to be involved in this. What a privilege it is to, to be involved in the wonderful good news going to all the world. We know in 2 Corinthians 9, God loves a cheerful giver. And why shouldn't we be full of joy in our giving? What do we have that we've not received? Everything we have, we've received temporarily anyway. God's going to call us on home. Let's try to use it well while we have it for the spread of the gospel. So we learn and pray. We plan and pay. Also, number five, we send pastors and others to help establish churches in gospel-needy places far away. We send pastors and others to help us in gospel-needy places far away. Getting all our members to understand that we're all ministers here brings us one step closer to some of us being missionaries there. So all the members of our church here have verbally shared the gospel in their membership interview. And if they were baptized at our church, they publicly share their testimony before they've been baptized. And hopefully that makes them more ready to share the gospel with others. We want every member to know that they should pray and give and evangelize and consider going. I've told our congregation Maybe you've never really considered that before, but we don't want to merely occasionally sacrifice a young couple to the cause of missions, breathe a sigh of relief, and hope that will appease the missions gods. You should consider going. Now, if somebody is beginning to think seriously about going overseas themselves, then they should maybe try this experiment. Uh, in a few minutes, when the session's over, or after the panel we're going to have right after this session, try to introduce yourself to somebody you don't know. Just see how that goes. See if there's any way you can be of any help to them spiritually. Or speak to somebody else about how they are. Practice that skill and that speech to help others. Because that's what you'd be doing. Part of our planning is to pay for the right things. 
We know that each person we send out is kind of like a pebble thrown in a pond with ripples radiating out. We want to pick the right pebbles and we want to throw them in the most needed parts of the pond. You know, we don't encourage a kind of lone ranger missionary. We encourage members who are interested in missions. We encourage them to be in conversation with us, to seek counsel, to give us time to affect their thoughts, uh, or, or get on board with them if we think they are being called and they are qualified. We understand the biblical pattern to evangelize the world is basically through planting churches. So we stress training pastors as central to our mission's vision. Uh, we want to see pastors raised up. So just a few examples of what we've seen, what we've tried to do. Uh, Christ Fellowship Church was started in Williamsburg, Virginia by a brother who was a member at CHBC for years and then did our internship program a few years ago. That church was able to send out their first missionary couple. They're now serving in Eastern Europe. Uh, some of you are from Rhode Island. Well, the pastor of Grace Harbor Church up in Providence, Rhode Island did our internship before we helped to place him in this church plant in the spiritually dark city of Providence. Now, 10 years on, they've helped to plant other churches and trained other pastors for other places in New England. Pastor Mount Vernon Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia, was a member at our church for years. Then he went to seminary. Uh, that church has just sent a copy of Max Stiles' book on evangelism to every other member of their church to encourage them in their intentionality in evangelism. And another former intern, a church planting pastor in Chicago, has done the same thing with his church members. A Third Avenue Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky has a pastoral internship program training young pastors. It's led by a brother who went through our internship, worked for Nine Marks, was on staff with us as an elder. So even through our staff, the way we try to have the staff is not merely focused on people who are forever going to be with us aimed at building up our congregation, but it's for us to have most of them for a season to try to help equip them and then send them out. Just this past spring, we sent out Jonathan Lehman and three other elders and 60 other members to start a new church in Chevrolet, Maryland. So they're now beginning to come with their own missions budget, like Jonathan was just sharing about in the last panel. In one recent class of interns, we had brothers coming from Uganda, Sweden, uh, Guyana, and South America. In this current class, who's with me right now, we have two Canadians, an English-speaking one and a French-speaking one, just to keep things balanced. And we have an intern from China. Uh, we've had interns go to pastor churches in many other countries in the world. We send people where there are no churches in hopes of seeing churches get started there. We have one brother who was a part of our church for quite a while, and we've now sent him to a part of the Middle East where there are not many churches in order to help see a church begun. My friends, we would happily send more people if we could. So we learn and pray, we plan and pay. We send pastors and church planters especially. Number six, we care for those we send. We care for those we send. We want to hear from them. We hear testimonies when they're in town. More creative churches could do things like, you know, electronically by Skype while they're meeting or something. But, you know, we do it in person. Uh, by our members' attendance in the evening service, they allow us to do more work than we otherwise could. So we get to hear testimonies. Many Sundays we'll have somebody coming through. Our children are being taught about the workers that we support in their classes. They're learning about spreading the gospel overseas. They're always being taught about VIPPs, very important prayer persons. Uh, in the Great Commission Club on Sunday nights, they learn about this. Meanwhile, in our evening service, we support these workers by having members share about how we can pray for them and help them. We try to help arrange for them to take sabbaticals with us when we can, and they can make it work out. We visit them. Uh, sometimes such visits could even be combined with business trips. We encourage our members when they know they're going someplace, just check it out in our directory. Talk to Andy beforehand. 
uh, maybe some of the other elders about who we might have there. See if there's some way you or your family could be an encouragement to them. Uh, we send some in short-term trips to support them in longer-term capacities. Now, we only want to do trips like that that workers there are asking for, so we do a lot of babysitting at, you know, for long-term missionaries during their conferences. We'll also have trips built around distributing Scripture. In a normal year, I'm overseas at least once a year for a short trip. So, for example, in 2015, I was in East Asia meeting with Chinese pastors. Uh, in September of that year, I spoke to two pastors' conferences in England. Then in January 2016, I was in Dubai uh, meeting with some pastors and teaching. And then I did the same in the Dominican Republic in May and Brazil in October. This year, I've been in England and in Wales in June. And along with Andy and Logan, I was in South Africa and Zambia and Kenya uh, just uh, last month in August. And next week, I'm, or week after next, I'm supposed to head to Poland and Russia. And Andy on our church staff does even more than I do, strategically using his time overseas to encourage work that we've already engaged in through others as a church. Sometimes we encourage members to move with their secular jobs to a certain place where they can support a good ministry that we know could use the support of wisdom and encouragement and prayer and perhaps financial support from another tithing members. So the, the, the um, Bowens in London uh, or, you know, many folks have gone to Dubai, McCutcheons, Walkers, uh, Armand in Moscow, uh, the folks who've gone to support the Weathersons just south of Perth, Australia. Uh, we try to care for those we send, encouraging them in practical ways. Finally, number seven, we wait for a faithful witness to be well-established. We help those we've sent out to endure. It's not like in the movies. Real rapid rarely happens. Real rapid rarely happens. God ordinarily uses the ordinary. Thus, children are formed in families and Christians in churches and not over a weekend conference, but over decades. We want our workers to be faithful to the gospel, not to feel pressure to produce numbers. Much fruit comes only after years of laboring. We want all of our members to be expectantly waiting and in the congregations they go to after here. One group of unsung heroes in the missionary endeavor are those who are long-term supporters at CHBC, whose love and prayers help those who've gone to wait. What God is about in our world is worth putting our lives into and then waiting for his visible results. You realize waiting is one of the basic things we do as Christians? We're all waiting for the return of the Lord Jesus. The length of the history in the Old Testament is there to show us that God is faithful over a long period of time. So waiting is a basic skill of the Christian life. It's not surprising that's an important part of our mission's work. So learn and pray, plan and pay, send pastors and care for them, and wait. Sunday before last, one friend handed me a letter before our evening service. She'd written it right after the morning service at our church. And here's just a little quote from the letter she wrote me. One year ago today, I was not a Christian. I'd never heard the gospel. I did not know who Christ was or what he had done for me. One year ago today, I went out with four very surface-level friends, drank more than I ought to have, was in an abusive relationship, and went home crying on my 21st birthday. This year, I was surrounded by around 40 people who genuinely care about my heart and want what is best for me and most glorifying for the Lord. About 35 of these people 
are part of the Universal Church of Christ. Around 30 of these people are part of the CHBC church body. I have no explanation of how I am so integrated in such an incredible community of so many people. It is so vastly undeserved and so clearly the Lord's kindness and mercy to provide not only a community, but one as rich as this. How sweet to have such tangible resources of presenting Scripture as truth to my unbelieving friends. My desires, affections, my habits and relationships. Honestly, my whole life has been changed this year. And this church has played such a huge role in that. God used this church body to save my life. Brothers and sisters, doesn't that glorify God? We are about doing that. That's what our lives are for. We're about bringing God glory in many ways. And surely this is one of the greatest and most important because this is where it all starts. This is where we all began. If we're here and we're really Christians, we have a testimony. Our life circumstances wouldn't have been exactly like hers, but we all have been changed that utterly and completely. And friends, please understand that such conversions will never be experienced by many around the world today because the gospel message isn't known among them. Let that sink in. Romans 10, 14. How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? Remember what missions is. Missions is taking the gospel across boundaries, especially the boundary of language. If evangelism is telling the gospel sometimes to people who don't know it, missions is evangelism telling the gospel in a place and among a people, a whole people, where it's largely unknown. Friends, people are not saved apart from hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. In one sense, all the marks of the healthy church we've been studying now for a decade at these conferences lead here. As one supported worker in a closed country told me years ago when I asked him how we could better support him, he responded, keep working on making this church healthy and work to make more churches like it. Because if you don't, there won't be anybody left to send out missionaries like us. That's ultimately how we love God and love others, isn't it? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your kindness in including us in your plans. Make us the instruments of many people's conversions, especially among those who, as of today, have not even heard of the Lord Jesus. We pray for your glory and their good. In Jesus' name, amen.